0: Father, I just lift this special time up to you. Your truth is so important to us. Um, We rely on your truth to guide us, to bring light into our world, to help our, our lives to have purpose, to direct us to you, to deepen our relationships with you to draw us closer to you. Lord, I just pray that you would minister to us through your truth this morning. I pray, Lord God, that you would take my words and make them what you want. Um, Lord, I just uh, um, ask, especially as we talk about dealing with trials this morning, as we talk about this paradigm shift that that must happen in our mind in order for us to approach trials as a joy. Lord, that you would bring to our mind um, those trials that you have us in. Um, Even maybe there's ones that we aren't even aware of because they just seem small. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort to our hearts as well um, for the trials that seem really big. Uh, Lord, I just uh, thank you for your truth and I thank you for this special time that we have together. pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us um, only in, in only the way that, that he does when we're here together um, as a corporate body. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're moving into our book study of the book of James where we're looking over these weeks of Mark's of a maturing follower of Christ. It took Biosphere 2 for a group of scientists to figure this out. I'm not sure why it took Biosphere 2 for them to learn this, but that's how uh, the information goes. Biosphere 2 was built by Columbia University in the 1980s in southern Arizona. It was a 3.1 acre indoor climate-controlled environment and is the largest laboratory in the world. But they found something peculiar happening in this 3.1-acre laboratory that being a biosphere, the purpose of it was to recreate um, ecosystems, uh, which are groups of natural plants and animals and, and um, circumstances that happen in the natural world. But what they were finding was that their trees were beginning to weaken and bend over and some of them, many of them just snapped in two in this environment. And it, it didn't take long I would hope for them to figure out what was going on and that was that in this controlled environment, even though it was climate controlled, what they were not providing was wind for these trees. And what they learned from this is that wind, even some of the, the tropical storm force wind that would bend trees almost parallel to the ground had an important role in making a tree stronger. That it was in probably the the just micro breaks in the cells of the trunk and then allowing it to heal again that caused those trees to strengthen and be able to stand up against future winds. And then to the point that even without wind there, the trees were becoming weak and snapping. We're looking today as we move into James 2 or James 1 verses 2 through 4. We're looking at where we're told, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These trees are in some ways a natural lesson for us that we're taught in these verses of James. That it is somehow through the bending trials, the pressure that's brought upon us in life, that we are ultimately strengthened in a relationship with the Lord. These verses, we're going to look very carefully at these three verses, and then uh, next week. We'll kind of look at how they flow into the more of the chapter of James 1, but we're going to look very carefully at these because these are linchpin verses for the rest of James. These are verses that need to be understood and kind of applied to the book of James in order for us to better understand why James is telling his readers what he is and, and why it, the importance of his information. Today we're looking at changing our minds about trials. Changing our minds about trials. I want to be careful here. Uh, this this is a, a great passage to preach uh, because the truth there is just so right there in your face, applicable. But I think that it was only in... Um, preaching in Colossians on relationships between husbands and wives that I felt more um, uh, unease in in preaching in my short time here at Harvest. Because even though these verses are easy to preach, they're also easy to be very insensitive with. Um, As we have farmers watch chance of rain after another pass by their crops and, and the corn is, is turning yellow from the ground up as I saw on my way in this morning. As I know some in our fellowship are, are afflicted with debilitating, even terminal medical conditions. As we pray for people like, like Jim who are looking for work and the weeks tick one after another. As, as I watched a father in the library I was, as I'm studying for this message gingerly cradle his preschool age daughter with an obvious disabilities as she's awkwardly trying to walk, just barely getting one foot in front of another. As I learn on the evening news this week that a mom in either Illinois or Indiana, I'm not sure, beat her 12-year-old son to death because he wouldn't tell her where he she hid where he hid her illegal prescription drugs. Um, we can make the mistake of talking about viewing trials as joy without empathy or coldly, and I don't want to make that mistake this morning. We can make the mistake of talking about viewing trials as joy while dismissing how deep a change this must take in the way that we view our life. The central idea that we're looking at this morning is that as Christ followers, we are called to radically change the way that we view the trials of life. We are called to radically change the way that we view the trials of life. Viewing trials with joy requires a change in how we view life itself. I appreciate that scripture isn't silent about the troubles of life. That it's not embarrassed about the sadness that come with debilitating problems. In John 9, we learn about a man who is born blind. And Jesus says that This was so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And the fact is that there were a hundred times that within Jerusalem that that would not be healed. Um, How did Lazarus feel about the fact that his body went through the death rattle? So that as Christ describes it, so that God's Son may be glorified through it in John 11. Outside of God's grace, these explanations would never be enough for us. By God's grace, I mean the gospel change that must happen in our life in order to see life as a completely different picture. By gospel change, I mean... A person coming to a place where they realize my relationship with my Creator is ruined by my sin. And I live in a state of being ruined in that relationship. But Jesus, in His holiness and in His perfection and in His almighty power and in His perfect being, took the penalty of my sin so that that gap between me and God could be spanned by his righteousness and that upon simply receiving his righteousness on my behalf based on his death and his resurrection that I can have a relationship with God. But that change doesn't stop from just our position. It changes our outlook. It changes how we view life. But it happens in that same cycle of realizing, you know what? I can't do this on my own. I need the righteousness and the person of Christ to change me. And in the area that James is talking about, I need the righteousness and the person of Christ to change the way that I view life. God's grace slowly shapes us into what is important to us according to what is important to him. First, I think, to, to best understand this, and this is maybe a little bit odd, but I think the, the structure of these verses uh, kind of require it, it helps to work backwards through these verses. Okay, and we're just going to do that shortly here. The whole goal here, the purpose that, that James is saying that should lead us to consider trials as, as a source of joy is that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The fact is this, radically changing the way we view trials means changing what is important to us. It requires changing what is important to us. How do we define, how we define what it means to be perfect uh, or for life to be perfect changes what we're going to rejoice about. What it means for your life to be complete is going to decide whether you consider your circumstances good or bad. If the American dream is what we consider to be the perfect life, we're not going to rejoice until we achieve it. God's definition of perfect, complete, lacking in nothing comes through holding firm during trials, is what we're told in James Warren Wiersbe writes it this way. He says, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value material and physical more than spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present or forget the future, then trials will make us bitter, not better, he writes. Let me say, this is... Yet again, one of those horizon issues. None of us are perfect now. None of us will be complete in this life. None of us will be lacking nothing in this life. But as we look toward the horizon of where God wants to take us, this is, his, this is what is on his horizon for us. And the more that our heart longs for what is on his horizon for us, the more we find joy in whatever moves us closer to that horizon. Okay, so as we talk about perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, we're not examining our lives. Are you perfect yet? Hmm? That's not what this is about. Uh, So as we move backwards through this passage, we're told that the testing of our faith produces endure, steadfastness. We're told in verse 4 that it's steadfastness that has this perfect effect, this full effect that, that we have to ask the question, are, are we, is that full effect what we're looking for out of our life? Radically changing the way we view trials means knowing that God can make us godly through trials that the testing of our faith is what produces steadfastness and steadfastness is what we need. We learn from this that it is in the testing of our faith that we gain what we need to become more godly. And lastly, moving to the beginning of our passage, he tells us, count it all joy, my brethren. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So radically changing the way we view trials Means seeing trials as a good thing. Seeing trials as a good thing. A quote by G.K. Gressett says God prepares great men for great tasks by great trials. God prepares great men for great tasks by great trials. We won't see trials as a good thing without knowing that God is using them for our good and His glory. We won't see trials as a good thing if we don't value what God values for us. When closeness to Christ is our idea of what it means to be complete, then we can have joy in trials. This is because we know that trials are stripping us of something that we might treasure more than Christ. And we're reminded in Romans 8, 35 and following, and if this is news to you, write this reference down. Romans eight thirty five and following that we're mi- reminded through our trials that nothing can take us away from Christ if we know him as our savior and nothing can take him away from us if we walk with him as our savior. So Christ followers are called to radically change the way that we view the trials of life. Don't you love how the news talks about the economy during an election year? It's like you don't even know where things are heading, you know, nationally. If people are for or against the president, they talk about how it's worse than it has ever been before. If people are for the president, the sitting president, they, they describe it like good news, while the unemployment numbers continue to increase, they're not as bad as they were expected to be. And we're supposed to go, I I think, I don't know. The outlook was pretty desperate for the believers that James was writing to. There was no sugarcoating it, plain and simple. They had been driven from their homes in Jerusalem By great intense persecution. They had had friends who had been put to death for their faith. They had friends who had been thrown in prison. Some of these people maybe had been thrown in prison in Jerusalem and released. And then taken their families and left to the greater Judea and Samaria area. But in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria that they made their way to. They found persecution there as well. They've, they were experiencing maybe a lower level of persecution, but they were experiencing rejection by the local culture because of their relationship with Christ. They were experiencing economic boycott of their industry and of their, what, what they had to offer because of their relationship with Christ. They were experiencing some serious economic hardships. They struggled with how to get ahead in life. They struggled with how to get ahead as a church, as a church mixed of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Maybe you've asked yourself lately or asked your spouse, how do we get ahead? How do we just get ahead right now? How do we just keep from moving backwards like we're doing? You can identify a little bit with what the believers that James is writing to, we're experiencing. But James commands a total shift of the way that we view life and the way that they view life. He says, Count it all joy or count it 100% pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Christ followers are called to view trials with joy. I'd even, I, I, you can say as well. Christ followers are commanded to be in the place where they view trials as joy. This considerate all joy is a command that we're given. The idea of counting it joy is to consider it or evaluate it as joy. It's actually a banking term. Okay? So, um, you know, these are... Checkbooks are probably going the way of the dinosaur and things. But um, in a checkbook register, those of you that, that balance these things, um, which I don't fall into that category. I, I use a computer and stuff. But, um, you know you write down what the transaction is and you have a column for the amount if it's coming out of the checking account. And you have a column for the amount if it's going into the checking account. We usually consider this a negative thing and the deposits or the income a positive thing. When I say that when James is saying, consider it joy, When I say that this is a banking term from that culture, he's literally saying move the situation from the debit side to the income side. Decide that this is not a negative and treat it as a positive. Now, the reason why we walked through this passage backwards first is because I don't want this... You need to not understand this as a work that we do. Okay, I've got to act happy. I've got to consider this joy, you know, whatever it is I'm going through. But we walk backwards through this because to see that we're able to consider it joy as we are wanting what it is that God wants to do in our life and we're recognizing the trial as being something that he's doing. To count it a trial as joy is to put it in the positive column rather than the negative column, even though the situation hasn't changed. Right? The situation hasn't changed. I appreciate he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if, when. We will meet trials, plain and simple. When he uses a term, you meet trials, it's when you fall into the midst of it and surrounded by it. It's used by somebody that falls into a band of robbers or something like that. This is not describing consequence of our sin, okay? Don't go home and be like, yeah, I'm really facing a lot of consequence. I guess this is a trial that I'm just have to find joy in. You know, this, is, this is talking about a situation where it's like... Dropped in your lap, you don't feel like you deserve this. You don't deserve this. That's just the situation that this is. Not that the consequence of our sin isn't something that God is using to train or discipline us with. When he says, of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, it means it actually means multicolored trials, all types, all sizes. Your trial is not too small, and it's not too big. For God to have a hand in and to be a part of and to be using to move you toward that horizon of the plan He has in a walk with Him. And He explains this by saying, For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Just as a fire purifies gold, trials act as a fire of testing. Our faith, testing our faith and proving, bringing out the purest form of our faith. uh, We learn about this in 1 Peter 1 where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire that this tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the idea that James is teaching is if we can keep in mind or if we can learn or if our heart can long for the fact that What we go through will be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If if that's what our hope is set on, then we can look at a trial and realize this is for my good and this is for God's glory. Charles Spurgeon said, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. And that's what he's talking about here when he describes trials as testing our faith. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness. In the explanation we're given here, we're told that the testing produces steadfastness. Um, I think the NAS describes it as endurance. Endurance. And the NIV describes it as perseverance. Literally, it means the remaining under. Testing of our faith teaches to remain under. The trial. To have a staying power. Steadfastness is a key character quality that opens up a world of growth. Okay, we have, for instance, we have beliefs about things. We have beliefs, but it's only by adding to those beliefs steadfastness that those beliefs become convictions. Okay? So steadfastness in our belief means we will follow that belief whatever the situation, the conviction. Many times we see our kids grow up, graduate, and where they would be able to mark everything off correctly on a test of beliefs, we see then their convictions in the choices that they make. We'll see later in James that he writes, the demons believe, and they even tremble. Beliefs plus steadfastness leads to convictions. Apply this to what James says when he says, faith without works is dead. I would work that backwardingly and say, because it's showing that it's belief without steadfastness. To, To live out of that belief, no matter what the circumstance is. This is the value of steadfastness in our life. The idea here is one of remaining under obedience to God no matter what the trial. Seeking to live for his glory as we move through the trial that we face. We're given the same explanation for rejoicing in our sufferings in Romans 5 where Paul writes, not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the suffering produces endurance which is the same term as steadfastness. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. Endurance or steadfastness is something that requires God's power to develop in us. We learned about this, if you recall, in Colossians 1.11 where he writes, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance. Endurance and patience with joy. It requires God's power. It requires us to interact with God over the trial. It requires us to go to him for strength amidst the trial. Don't look at this as, okay, you're a good Christian if you can stand up under trials and you're kind of not if you crumble under them. No, because we don't have the power to do this on our own. It's God's power according to his glorious might for all the endurance that we need and patience with joy. I'm going to tell you about a guy in my um, high school class. We were actually classmates kindergarten through 12th grade. His name is Jason. And Jason had two older brothers, Tim and Jeremy. And Tim and Jeremy were taller They were stronger. Jason was kind of the runt of the family. But I want to tell you, by the time Jason was in high school, he was an amazing forward on the high school basketball team. You see, Jason's secret was that he played basketball at home with his brothers. And I remember talking to him about this one time. We were kind of talking about what he does, you know, at home or and the off-season and things. And even when his brothers were in college and home on the weekends, he had a practice of playing basketball with them. And the rule was they were supposed to play dirty. They were supposed to grab his arms as he was going up for a shot. They were, he said sometimes they'll even grab my shoulders as I go up. And the idea was, is that runty little Jason became an amazing forward on the high school basketball team because he accepted, he asked for the challenge as he practiced from his brothers. What's your first response when trials come? If you're like me, your shoulders slump, you might hang your head and sit down You might think, what else can go wrong? Honest. Oftentimes, we can't help the first response. God is working on our second response. Responding with joy will start with recognizing that He is all powerful and He has all things under His control. Also, He is all good. And following him is the greatest good we can ever experience. Whatever the trial you're facing, if you know Christ as your savior, you will know him more deeply through it. If you allow yourself to remain under his purpose, his power, his person through it. and you will endure the trial and seeking, seek to allow God to use it for his glory if you're not if you have not received Christ as your savior I pray that the purpose of God in the trial that you're going through would be to bring you into relationship with him and what we mean by that again is realizing that you cannot bring yourself into that relationship with him due to your sin due to the condition that we're all born into of not having a relationship with him, and that you need the righteousness of Christ that he made available through his death and his resurrection to count on your behalf. Scripture tells us, to as many as will receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Don't let a trial go to waste. Don't let a trial go to waste. So the second idea here is that he tells us, let steadfastness, let this remaining under God's purposes and God's glory through the trial have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A quote I read says this, steadfastness itself is, has an effect. It's like holding a fine steel sword blade in the fire until it's thoroughly tempered. In this case, the sword is the believer. The fire is testing. And the tempering is that the believer becomes mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So Christ followers are called to yield to God's work in us amidst the trial. This idea again, we're going to visit here again, this idea of perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is another important statement because as James talks about maturity, as James talks about choosing what is right, this is his image of Christian maturity as we walk through these three terms here. Again, we're discussing the horizon that God is moving us toward as we walk through life in a relationship with him. It's by this steadfastness, the remaining under God's, God's will, remaining under God, trusting God and moving through a trial with God that we get to where God intends. This term perfect is interesting. We tend to think perfect means perfect in all areas, Right? This term perfect means coming out at the end of a task as it was intended to be. Okay, so let's say you're building a table, all right? And you finish one of the legs. And you look at that leg and you think, that is perfect. That doesn't mean the table's complete. That doesn't mean the table's done. It means that that part of it that you were working on is perfect for what you were working on. And that's part of the picture here of not only is this a horizon issue of what it means to be mature in Christ, it's also that idea that God's got a perfect plan for that trial that you're going through. Let him have his perfect work done through that time. Not that Life is complete. Not that life is all perfect um, by his standards. When it says perfect and complete, complete means complete in all parts. There's where he's talking about perfect all over. That's like that finished table. The parts are starting to come together. Things that you've learned over here, things that you learned in a Bible study is starting to come to earth in this trial as you allow yourself to walk with God through it. He also goes on, he calls it lacking in nothing, which literally means not missing anything necessary. Finished. If you're like me and you get this table from the store, inevitably you depart from the directions at some point and you don't realize that until you get to the end of the table and you have pieces left or maybe that Christmas bike, right? And it's like, I missed something here. You know, something was supposed to go somewhere here. He's he's challenging his readers, he's challenging us that we miss, we'll have something lacking through it if we just have the idea of, I don't care what God calls for me from, this is hard, I don't want to be in it, I'm going to do what it takes to get out of it. we'll we'll miss some steps. We'll miss what he has in mind. The point is that remaining faithful under trials and suffering is what allows us to move toward the destination of maturity in Christ. This is why James seems to get really picky with us. And you'll see that in the coming weeks. He doesn't accept excuses. No matter the circumstances, he tells us you're called to grow in Christ. Now I thought about actually reading the book of james you know and letting us see how james works these into all the different sections and things but i thought you know i i don't think we'll do that but to let you know reading the book of james if you read it out loud which typically people read slower out loud takes 16 minutes i mean most of us spend more time reading the paper every day for more than 16 minutes. But to read a full letter from someone like James to the early church could take 16, 20, 25 minutes. And so I'm going to leave that in your hands. But instead I'm going to skip through James here. Please don't imagine me skipping. Um, I'm going to skip through James here applying what I mean by this linchpin verse of This is what you need to get from trials, readers, from James, to other statements that he makes. What did this look like to the believers that James was writing to? As I mentioned, they were under a lot of financial stress. They were under a lot of relational stress in their church. They were going through a lot of trials. Rather than yielding themselves to God's sovereign work in their financial stress, in their relational stress, they were, th- they were tempted to think, all I need is to make connections with the right people. And that will get me out of this spot that I'm in. So who comes walking into church but a poor man and a rich man? And they're tempted to think, that's what I need to do to get out of this spot that I'm in in my life. And James writes to them in James 2.1, and really, many of these are the openings of these sections in James. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't think that this is how you're going to get out of the trial that you're in. James warns them about seeking to get ahead in life by showing partiality to the rich. Also, they are tempted to think rather than yielding themselves to God's work in their financial stress, they're tempted to think what matters most is what I believe, not actually what I'm called to do. James wrote about the importance of living out our faith, especially in regards to the poor that are among us. He writes in James two, fifteen through seventeen, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them. Go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Rather than yielding themselves to God's sovereign work in their church relationships, they're tempted to think maybe I could better my life, maybe I could get ahead by becoming a respected teacher in the church. James writes to them and says, "Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness." He goes on to explain that this is because controlling the tongue, controlling what we say, is one of the hardest things for a person to do. It's much too easy in the position of teacher to promote yourself. And that's why he writes them later in this chapter. But if you have bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. These are all in the context of, Lord, I'm uncomfortable. Lord, times are hard. I, I'm going out one day after another and I'm coming home with nothing for my family and for my work. How do I get ahead in life? That's that, These verses of considering a trial as joy weaves all through the book of James. Rather than yielding themselves to God's sovereign work and their financial stress, they're tempted to think, my problem is everyone else is holding me back and keeping me from getting what I need. That's why James writes in chapter four, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. Remember what we said? Trials bring out what's within us. And this is what James is pointing out to them in chapter four. James points out to them that the desires are exposed, their desires are exposed during hardships, are actually the problem. The trial that brings them to the surface, these desires to the surface, is actually the blessing. The desires are the, The trials are the blessing because they bring these competing desires to the surface for them. Rather than yielding themselves to God's sovereign work and their financial stress, they're tempted to think, I just need to become more financially shrewd. James writes later in chapter 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I was just talking with one of you today about how working in a plant, it's easy to pick up overtime. Hey, if it's available, I'll take it. If it takes me away from my family too much, I don't care. If it takes me away from one Sunday after another, Give it to me. We have that temptation under financial stress to just do what we think needs to take us out of it. Do you see how James is answering that for them in this verse? Finally, he ties it all together in chapter 5. Amidst all their financial troubles and their persecution, he challenges them to look to Christ's return. This is why he says in chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James seems pretty tough we'll see that in these weeks. Like I said, James doesn't take any excuses. Especially, he doesn't excuse their circumstances. James knew that at the Lord's coming, all that would matter was how complete they had become. How much much closer they had moved toward that horizon of maturity in Christ, of their heart looking more like the heart of God. Knowing this is what would give them and us the ability to go through trials with joy, knowing that this is how we're better formed into Christ's likeness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. I'm just going to close reading um, just a paragraph here from a writer that I read, and he was describing um, visiting a Famous weaver, uh, weaving rugs and tapestries and things like that. It says, um, my wife and I once visited a famous weaver and watched his men and women work on the looms. I noticed that the undersides of the rugs were not very beautiful. The patterns were obscure and the loose ends of the yarn dangled. Don't judge the worker or the work by looking at the wrong side, our guide told us. In the same way, we're looking at the wrong side of life, only the Lord sees the finished pattern. Let's not judge him or his work for what we see today. His work is not finished yet. God is working in us to make our character, to make our life more like the person of Christ. Whether we like it or not, the uncomfortable trials are the tools that he uses to better fashion us for that purpose. And let me emphasize again, if you don't have a relationship with Christ as your savior, um, it's, that, that's the definition of all for naught. All of it for nothing. You know, I, I stand in the back uh, to kind of greet people as they go and stuff, but if you fall into that category of not knowing Christ as your Savior, I would be more than happy to talk with you, and I'm sure that there's plenty. Maybe someone you know here would be more than happy to talk with you about that. Father... Um, I I bite my tongue as I say it, but thank you for trials. Lord, I confess I don't want more trials um, because I like my comfort. Um, Lord, I thank you for bringing harvest through a lot of trials. Um, And Lord, I thank you more than anything for your purpose that's greater than our circumstances. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to be made more in the likeness of your character and to be made more complete and mature in Christ, waiting for that day that he'll return for us. And so we pray for your grace and your power to endure, to hold up under trials this week and to walk in faith knowing that you're at work in them and that you have a greater purpose than we could ever uh, hope for. I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.